Welcome back to Tune Into Nature. My name is Kelly. And my name is Anna, your co-host. You're listening to Tune Into Nature. In today's episode, we are speaking with Dr. Sunshine Swetnam, an assistant professor in human dimensions of natural resources, a CSU Mountain Campus faculty member, and a ski area management master's certificate lead. Today, we'll be discussing how climate change affects snowpack and ski resort tourism. To kick it off, Sunshine, would you introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. (laughs) Sunshine Swetnam, and Sunshine is my real birth name. Can you start with how did you get to where you are now? I'm a Colorado native. I'll start with that. Born and bred. Started skiing when I was two years old, and I have been skiing for 45 years. I also was a ski instructor in the industry outside of Colorado in Arizona and Alaska. I was a guide in the wilderness for 20 years and at this point had come back to academia and got a master's in adult education and then a PhD in human dimensions and natural resources. And then COVID came. All along, I'd been teaching up at the mountain campus and teaching NR220 for our our Warner students, ecology and measurements for people who don't know, and um, got asked to take over the ski area management program. So here I am, and by way of being in the industry and knowing the industry well. That's how you got to where you are, but um, what are you currently working on right now, research, work-wise, anything that you want to talk about? Just yesterday, I took a handful of former Warner alum down to something called Colorado Cooperation, and it is a group of people, state legislature persons that have been in this community for 35 years. And it is partially backed by Kathy Reynolds, who is the president of CSU Extension, which is a statewide program. And we talked about hydrology and the water crisis in Colorado. Previous to that, in October, I was at the United Nations Mountain Summit as an honored guest of the country of Andor, who's one of the founders of the United Nations Mountain partnership. And the reason we were there is we were talking about how important mountains are. And um, for Colorado, mountains are important because it generates our tourism, but mountains are also important because that's where our water precipitation is held in snowpack. And so worldwide, we find that both these themes are true. And so we come together to talk about them. And so from there, I've built a um, ski area consortium. And we have a group of ski areas in the region that have come together and we're starting to talk about climate change and what to do in the industry and how to handle moving forward and adapting and diversifying because we need to play. And in that play, we relax. And when we relax, we're kinder to one another. Um, So that's partially why tourism industry exists, partially. (laughs) So there's a there's a snippet for now. More might come up in a minute. Yeah, no, thanks for that overview. Definitely big fans of mountains over here. <laughs> oh, yes. We love the mountains. <laughs> so obviously you touched on all the things that led you up to this point in terms of policy, guiding, all that sort of thing. If a student wanted to get involved in this sort of work, what majors would you recommend to them? Back when I was an undergrad, I started here at CSU and then I went to Northern Arizona University. Turns out they have a resort pretty much just outside of town. And so I became a ski instructor while I was going to college. For people that are here at CSU, please finish your degree. (laughs) Please finish your degree. In fact, if you want, you can come take my degree, which is a master's certificate, and you can take it right on the heels of your bachelor's degree. And... 
What we have is a fall semester of four courses. They are two credit courses. We offer two at a time. They're eight-week courses. So the first eight weeks, you'll take two two-credit courses. The second eight weeks, you take a second two courses and then go into the field in an internship style, which means you're going to be starting in December and you go into the field in an internship style always in the ski industry, you will always work Christmas. You will always work New Year's. You will always work President's Day, Martin Luther King Day. Those were out of order and spring break because those are the money generators. And so you have to expect that if you're going to be in the industry. But you finish these four courses. For me, you go into an internship style. And while you're working in the field over that winter, you can take my last two courses, which are offered one at a time. So you're working and taking an eight-week two-credit course that's it. And then when that one's over, you take the second one. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. And then you'll have your certificate. So then you have a couple things going on. You have experience in the industry. You have knowledge base from academia. And if you are a hard worker and a diligent worker, your bosses are going to notice because you're going to know more <laughs> than the people you're working with. And so then you have a competitive edge, which is precisely the point of education and precisely what we want for you here at CSU. We want to slingshot you into higher levels at the workforce. And so over time, you're going to work your way up in the industry. Mm -hmm. And so that's the beauty of the program, but that's also the start point. If you don't want to do that certificate, (laughs) regardless, the answer plainly is just go get in the industry. They really need people. I have connections all over the country that call me frequently wanting people from CSU to come work for them. So that being said, I'll put a plug in for Taos Ski Valley and Sun Valley, Idaho. Both have called me in the past month looking for CSU students. If they get to capture <laughs> me through this podcast, you can get a hold of me and I will happily connect you to people that are seeking employees. Amazing. I love that. That sounds like a great program and definitely something that's very beneficial to people that would be involved in that. That's more on like the graduate level. What would you say for um, like incoming freshmen? To kind of like, what's like a good starting point, like baseline zero? Okay, so baseline zero, if you're just coming into CSU and you think that this is the pathway you want to go, I would tell you to go a couple different directions. The first one would be to come to my department, Human Dimensions and Natural Resources, and become a natural resource recontourism student and follow that pathway. From there, we have services to help you complete your master's certificate on top of your bachelor's degree as you exit CSU and go into industry. The other natural fit that we're finding are students over in the ecosystem science services in the watershed science because we all are snow-oriented. If you think about winter tourism, winter sports, water, then you shift it into the summer and you think whitewater rafting, again, water, snow does melt eventually. Those are the natural fits that seem to converge wanting to work for the ski industry. Totally. I definitely know people in watershed and they talk all the time about their snow hydrology classes where they just (laughs) get to go out and ski. And also we have a fellow ambassador who we talked to in an earlier podcast who's a freshman in HDNR and just absolutely loves that communication. So kind of hearing how they overlap, that's really great to hear. And I should add, naturally, when we're up at the mountain campus teaching ecology and measurements for the five disciplines that exist in Warner College, which for those that don't know is forestry, rangeland, stewardship, wildlife biology, And then a natural progression to the watershed science and the human dimension. Those two always sit together, just like rangeland, forestry, and the wildlife biology tend to sit together. So it just makes sense that the industries are natural fits as well. Totally. Can you speak a little bit more on the mountain campus and how watershed and tourism 
looks like up there and really gets you prepared for getting into the field. Really what she just asked was how what the student would get out of coming to the mountain campus right. and taking the ecology and measurements course, which is in our 220, from a watershed and human dimensions perspective. I can't speak so deeply about the watershed side because I don't teach it. <laughs> um, but in a general overview, as far as the watershed side of things, it's an overview of what is a watershed, how a watershed functions, how you measure the water in that, where it's headed, how it's used, how we save it, how we conserve it. Water is a huge issue, especially in the American West. So that's one. On the human dimension side, we talk about measurements in the sense of campsites, trail management, leave no trace, how we manage people, how we manage land, how we get people to behave better on land. Um, and then that really brings in a guiding aspect as well, because really, if it's not known already, we're the tricky ones and we're the ones that are very much we, the humans, impacting the land. And so if we can find ways to help people appreciate how how we treat the land and how we treat one another, then maybe we can be more conservative and protect our lands and enjoy them and appreciate our planet in a healthier, more symbiotic way. Well, thank you for speaking on that. Moving away from the more academia side of things in school and more into your profession, um, how would you say that the negative impacts of climate change could be avoided? Can they be avoided? Or is it more about managing, referring to the decline in snow quality? No. I do not think the effects of climate change can be avoided at all because it is something we certainly cannot have control over. It is something that we are affecting and we are exacerbating. We are causing acceleration, but it is not something that we can just grab a dial and turn it down. Mm -hmm. Now, there's things we can do to turn some of the things we're doing, the harmful things we're doing back. Um, and I'm thinking about some of my peers who are experts in that, and I'd like to give them the space to talk about that. But what is going on right now is we know that it is snowing at high elevation. We know it is snowing north. And the rest of it can tend to vary and be inconsistent, especially if you hang out with snow hydrologists like we do here at CSU. You learn that that snowfall is not at the lower elevations as it once was. What can we do about it is a trick. I mean, we all can do something for ourselves. I mean, sure, you can recycle and you can be greener and you can ride your bike and you, you can be more responsible in that way, right? Mm -hmm. um, but as an industry, I think it also matters who you work for and what they stand for because you need to remember when you're working for them, you're going to be standing for whatever they're standing for as well. Right. Yeah. And so there, by the way, I want to say there's 354 active resorts in the United States of America, ski resorts. And when I say ski, ski and snowboard to you snowboarders out there <laughs> and telemark. Um, but we have some very large conglomerates that exist out there that are moving forward, like Vail Resorts, like Altera, that are really pushing forward to adapt and work towards climate change. And they also have that financial funding. Well, let's just say you're a student from CSU and you have hopefully an, am an amazing education and we have shot you like an arrow out there into the workforce and you go work for a smaller resort. Could you imagine how much you could innovate and help others grow? Mm -hmm. Because not all of those small resorts are going to concede to acquisition from these larger conglomerates. And so if you were embedded at a smaller resort, how could you help them adapt and overcome in climate change? Some things that are happening that I know of right now that I'm super excited about 
Copper Mountain Resort is running a program of ecological restoration on their ski slopes. Really? And they awesome. Are, <laughs> it is so exciting. And I just learned about it. And they are working in conjunction with White River National Forest. And so they have the blessings of the Forest Service. And they have 64 different plants, forbs, and wildflowers that they are planting now in their ski resorts to restore the slope itself that's already been decimated, you know? Yeah. And so it's not restored perfectly, but the carbon sequestration that happens and the snow retention that happens because the swath of land that was once scarred is now being refurbished and restored creates a more complete cycle. And then that keeps more water in the system and that keeps more water for snowmaking. That keeps more water in retention ponds. This is one of my favorite cool climate changey things. And in those retention ponds, they serve as a triple dip because you will make snow out of that water then your snow melts and comes back to that pond so you're keeping it in the cycle back in your resort but then it's a triple dip because in the summer when the fires hit they have a place to siphon so i love that idea i i don't know everything but i'm constantly learning new innovations. And that's something that Dr. Stephen Foshna over in Watershed Science and I both have been working on. And it's one of our more recent projects. And so we're looking at innovations of um, ski areas in climate change. And some of the other things that have come up is um, just predictability and looking at the past and maybe the past five years and predicting what their seasons might be like. The other thing that's happening in the industry itself, and I hope this is appropriate to that question, is They need to diversify because here's the bottom line. I mentioned it earlier. We need to play. We do. There's a lot of leisure research out there. We need to play. It's good for our health. And I'm sure everyone listening to this absolutely agrees. But the industry doesn't always have snow. And so we can't always have snow to play in. So they have to diversify. And that's where you see things like X Games, Tiva Games, free concerts at the base of a mountain, a film festival, a beer festival, Telluride Bluegrass Fest, um, mountain biking. Um, Zip lines are kind of on their way out because there's been a lot of litigation around the zip lines. Vail Mountain itself has like an eco center for you to ride the gondola to the top of and learn more about the ecology of the area and why you should take care of it. So here's the thing. It'll take a lot for Mother Nature to overgrow and overtake all of our resorts, especially if we're there working at those resorts and impacting them, right? Because then we maintain them in resort style instead of Mother Nature style, Mm -hmm. like by cutting things back or trimming things, whatever. The bottom line is the infrastructure is there. How do we use that infrastructure so people continue to keep coming and playing? And that's why that diversification part is a trend and it's necessary for survival in the face of climate change. That was amazing answer. Yeah, I think um, <laughs> truly, <laughs> I think your um, first point about putting in the different like plants onto like the slope that I think is a amazing idea. Which I can't believe it hasn't been thought of before. Because in one of my um, I'm in an ecosystem ecology class right now, and one of the points that we talked about is how biodiversity has just been linked to overall like ecosystem health. Um, improvements, just generally speaking. So I'm sure that will have great effects. So I'm going to put a plug in for Copper Mountain. His name is Jeff Grasser, and he is a CSU RAM, and he came from the Conservation Leadership Through Learning Program, CLTL, in the Human Dimensions and Natural Resources Department. And that is a master's program. But to see that he's (laughs) one of us, and he's out there doing this good work, high five all around. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yep. And he's um, now doing it in conjunction with a base and they're starting to do it as well. And so they host a conference. I just learned about this, but they host a conference in the summer of how to do this ecological restoration at resorts. So I'm hoping I will have the opportunity to take some of our students to that conference this summer. And it's at the end of July since people are listening and they're involved in citizen science. So that means anybody's invited. Yeah, that's really awesome. Bouncing off of what Anna was saying, just how comprehensive that answer was was really awesome. I feel like there's a lot to unpack about the different stakeholders that can get involved in this work from people graduating from Warner going to do that ecological restoration work. I feel like that's stuff that if you're in the ecological restoration, you might not think about having that be an opportunity. And at a ski resort, you might more think of fire disturbance and that sort of thing, not mm-hmm. not these tourism industries. So I think that's a really cool thing for students to think about that are graduating with these degrees and to plug in with that i'm thinking about you know it takes many minds not just one (laughs) or two you know and so those of you that are listening if you're getting inspired and you're coming up with great ideas come talk to us and come tell people like me or Stephen Flashnot what you're thinking and let's see if we can find you pathways and see if we can find you places to innovate because the industry needs the innovation, which then goes back to not just sticking with those larger resorts because the little resorts really need people like us to show up and help because that infrastructure, again, is still there. Yeah, Absolutely. especially with climate change being such a severe issue and not really having, you know, a solution more just like management, as you said, new like innovative technology is really going to be the way to go on reaching those management solutions. I also really like what you were saying about the citizen science and incorporating people outside of the natural resources field, because I feel like a lot of people are passionate about this, but and they're, you know, buying season tickets to ski resorts and stuff. But they might not even recognize where things are going wrong and what they can do to help. So having those citizen science campaigns is really awesome. Education is key. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. (laughs) Going off how education is key, it ties us perfectly into our next question of communication with public about the issue and the policy. So how would you say you are communicating the issue to the public right now? I keep having randomly strange opportunities that come my way. I was just interviewed by the Washington Journal and the Washington Post a couple days ago. I was just talking to former state legislatures yesterday. I talked to people who listen. I'm somehow working with the country of Andorra. I don't even know how that all worked out, (laughs) but it did. And I ended up at the United Nations. I've never done such a thing in my life. So now I know people around the world. As a result of that conference, some of the people I saw at that conference I saw yesterday in Denver. So I think it's a matter of just getting out there and being brave and talking about it. I don't know what else to do. Creating a consortium is another thing that myself and the country of Andorra have done together. Um, And we have that going in Europe, Canada, Chile, and I'm heading the one here in North America. And just starting those conversations is getting it out. And we're doing it in industry in that perspective. But in that in industry here, I don't know how I'm sitting here talking with you, but I'm sitting here (laughs) talking with you, telling a bunch of listeners this is going on, Mm -hmm. you know, and just, I think one thing I really do want to say though, is sometimes you just got to get brave and follow your heart and go for it and hope it works out and have integrity and be a good person. And things just start happening. I can get behind that. Yeah, I can. (laughs) It's like the universe just delivers. Right. I feel like those things that y'all mentioned, you know, the UN, these consortiums, that sounds really big and scary to potentially a prospective student that's listening to this. 
I know you said, you know, go and be brave, but for someone who's maybe a little more introverted but still really cares about these issues. Yeah, and like new to the field. Right. How do you build your confidence in that, do you think? Okay. Besides just going for it. You can't see me, and I'm I'm a little spicy Italian person, but at the (laughs) same time, I'm tearing up because I care so much, and I understand that there are so many of us that are so different. Mm -hmm. I mean, my husband couldn't be more introverted, and (laughs) I'm super extroverted until I'm not, you know, and all of us have our gifts. Every single one of us have our gifts. Each of us is unique. Each of us has something to bring to the table. And just because I'm extroverted and I'm brave in the sense of going out and being like, okay, sure, I'll take a stab at it, even if I'm wrong. (laughs) I admit when I'm wrong to the best of my ability, though, right? So on the flip side, if you're more introverted and you find a quieter way to do this, please go do it. Maybe it's by way of artwork. You know, I noticed uh, this is so profound. I hope you all look this up. But there is somebody in the Ukraine that is going in the aftermath and making these incredible sepia-toned paintings throughout the war-torn portions of Ukraine, of Ukraine slamming Russia onto its back. And it's unbelievable. That's probably not a really extroverted, chit-chatty person like me that's doing that. And I have artists at my house. So, you know, I'm trying to encourage people to sit with who you are and get to know yourself and be willing to take your risks and be brave in the way you know yourself. Maybe it is that painting in a war-torn zone. Maybe it is going to talk to somebody and the next thing you know, you're going to the United Nations. Maybe it is saying, hey, can we sit down and have lunch and a cup of coffee and making connections? Ah, there it is. But it's about making connections, you guys. It's about connecting with one another, being authentic, being honest, not trying to grab each other by the back of the shirt and ripping them down and power stuff. It's about being real and being authentic. I promise you'll get somewhere with it. I think um, communication about, you know, a very serious issue. There's like a lot of ways to do it good, like some better than others. But I think because it's such an intense and serious and critical issue, I think any communication of any kind is good. And education, just getting as many people to be aware of the issue, that way they can start caring about the issue, and then that's when solutions are made. I think that's just the perfect way to go. Well, and like we said just a few minutes ago, like with the citizen science piece, they may not know until they know. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's true for all of us. You know, how do you know what holding hands is like or skipping is like until you do it? I can tell you about it. You can imagine it. Yeah, I feel like a lot of those conversations can even happen just at the dinner table with your roommates or your family who are like, don't really know. They're in different majors. They have different backgrounds. Maybe don't, aren't as, you know, focused on studying this stuff and observing the results of climate change as we're so tuned to do because of our degrees and everything. (laughs) But yeah, I feel like that's, I like to do that with my parents when I'm home. I'm like, hey. Do you know this is happening? Yeah. <laughs> poke, poke, poke. <laughs> well, the same principle has been around for a long time in the land ethic of leave no trace, right? Mm-hmm. Because we teach you leave no trace because we want you to know leave no trace in every park. That includes the park across the street from your house. That includes Central Park. That includes Rocky Mountain National Park, all parks, right? And so we want you to learn that and practice that ethic. And remember, an ethic is a way of being. And in practicing that ethic, you should be sitting around the dinner table sharing that with your parents or going camping with your friends and saying, please don't throw that bottle in the fire. Let's recycle it. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Yeah. And Kelly, I'm the same way with, with my (laughs) roommates. My, I have a, I love her to death, but she's a business major. And so she doesn't really dive into the natural sciences very much. And so I'll, you know, be talking about these complex like issues that natural resources are facing and she'll just 
she'll have no idea that they're going on. I'll be like, yeah, isn't it awful? Yeah. <laughs> so it really is just talking to people. Yeah. And even, you know, you need those business friends and everything because they're the ones that can run the corporations oh, and sure. make them better too. You need, you know, you need everyone. Exactly. Sure. Just speaking like Vail is a big corporation. Everyone, it's a very like, you know, everyone has to work in harmony to get real progress made. Well, I think some of the adversity, though, that we deal with in that is that not everybody is willing to work in harmony. For sure. And mm -hmm. that's that's part of the trick of the world, right? And that's what I was meaning by don't get in the crab bucket and climb up on top of one another, grabbing each other by the back of the shirt. Mm -hmm. That's not harmony. And it is how the game's played, for those of you that are listening, thinking, what are you saying, Sunshine? But that is how the game's played. You're right. But really, is that how we're going to get somewhere? Because we've been doing that for a long time. Mm -hmm. And so I think the three of us are talking about cooperation and collaboration and co and together and that there is room enough for each of us. And until we get to that point, the same game is going to continue to be played. And it's that power game. Yeah. Yeah. So start at the bottom. Here we are down here. Grassroots. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Literally grass. <laughs> <laughs> Literally grass. <laughs> well, to kind of wrap up our conversation around ski tourism, where do you see the future of ski tourism and the ski industry going? I think we're going to have uh, shorter ski seasons. We already are. I interviewed the southernmost ski area in the United States. It is Mount Lemmon, L-E-M-M-O-N, in Tucson, Arizona. And they roughly sit at 9,000 feet elevation. And they are very old. They've been around since the 40s. And their first rope tow was ran on a Model T Ford engine. And they do not have snowmaking. I said, so what are you going to do? You know, you guys are going to set a precedent because you are the southernmost resort. Well, they said as long as the border is open, they can switch from winter operations to summer operations in three days. So that efficiency is critical. And people come in droves and they want to ride their chairlift to go have a picnic and take a hike. Right. So people still want to be in nature. And we already had the COVID experience prove that to us. More people went to nature than ever have been recorded before. Now, if we can get more people in nature where they're behaving and taking good care of it because we've educated them. So the ski industry is a great place to be educating those people, as we've already established. So where is it headed? We're going to have shorter seasons and there's going to be resorts that are in certain proximities that are going to struggle to have those longer winters. Like, think about, did you know that there's resorts in the Carolinas? Yes. You know, in Appalachia? <laughs> so, like, think about those guys versus a resort in Michigan. Michigan's probably going to have a longer season. Mm -hmm. I did right. say it's snowing at higher elevations and it's snowing up north. We know those two things. It's a matter of how how you manage it. So, the industry, I, I don't even want to call it ski industry anymore. Mm -hmm. I want to call it like mountain fun industry, you know? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> because there's going to be a time and a period for winter play, but then that ends. And that's where that diversification piece is coming in. And so then then how do we submerge ourselves in nature and mountain play in such a serene place? Mm -hmm. I like that perspective of just kind of shifting our timing a little bit, but yeah. still yeah. being able to enjoy. Yeah, it kind of goes right along with the climate change effects and like management. It's, you know, you can't really solve the problem, but it's all about managing and like changing your outlook and how you do things. So I think that flows right in with the future of the mountain fun industry as well. <laughs> Shall we move on to some rapid fire questions? Oh, Anna? yes. <laughs> Can I, Time for the fun part. Yes. Can I, can I uh, say one thing? For sure. I just sure. want to remind people why we ski. 
So if you're listening, please close your eyes. And I just want you to smell the snow. And I want you to hear that poof of snow falling off the tree. And I want you to hear maybe a woohoo way off in the distance and a clack of skis. That's why we go out there, because we get that serenity. Thanks for letting me share. Of course, yeah. Time for some rapid fire questions. So to kick things off, ski or snowboard? Ski. I can snowboard, but ski. Mm. Alpine. I'm a big snowboarder, (laughs) but I respect the ski for sure. I'm a ski girl. (laughs) How long have you been skiing? 45 years this year. Wow, that's awesome. Are you doing anything fun to like celebrate 45 years or? I'm a hockey mom and a mom of an artist. I celebrate them. Oh, (laughs) sweet. (laughs) Kind of going off how long you've been skiing and what is it that you love most about skiing that made you stick with it for so long? Honestly, it's like active meditation. Mm -hmm. Seriously. I mean, you just get so zen and you get in the flow and the state of be. Um, You do have to have peripheral awareness, you know, of others for sure. But there's nothing sweeter than that. Are you the type of person to take your time, do your, you know, relax down the hill, or are you like a speed demon down the hill? You know, to be honest, I <laughs> want steep. <laughs> yeah. The rush of adrenaline. I yeah. want steep. Yeah, I'm happy to cruise later, but that's what I want. That's fair. Respect. <laughs> Favorite mountain? Yes, one with good snow. <laughs> yes. Preach. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm curious, and I'm happy to ski places I never have. I'll tell you some that I really love. I mean, I grew up skiing Vail before it was Fancy Vail. And I know that mountain inside and out. I love Breckenridge. I love Copper. love Jackson Hole. I worked at Mount Alaska in Alaska, which is such a treasure and a treat. But I love Arizona Snowball on a really fat powder day as well. So uh, Crested Butte, oh, Wolf Crested Creek, <laughs> Purgatory. I mean, I could go. I love to ski. Yeah. <laughs> it's not about the Toes. place, that's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> but the places are pretty nice. Too. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> haven't skied California or Washington or Oregon yet, just saying. Mm. <laughs> Put it on the list. Yeah. Maybe that's how you'll celebrate your 40 Maybe. Year. <laughs> I'd like to ski Japan. That'd be cool. Ooh, That'd that be would awesome. be fun. <laughs> so to stay warm on the mountain while you're skiing, mittens or gloves? Well, I have gloves that look like a silverback gorilla. (laughs) I've had them for 20 years, and they're from Patagonia, and I cannot give them up. Patagonia lasts. (laughs) Shout out to Patagonia because their quality of goods, I love them. And they're upcycling. Oh, yes, for sure. Great brand. Ooh, this is a controversial one, maybe. Your least favorite water law. There's a lot of bad ones. (laughs) I I wished I had a really solid answer. That's punny, but I wish I did. you know, I don't I don't know that I can really go there. I think that water laws are necessary and I really don't want to weigh in on that because there's a lot of power and there's a lot of people affected and it sincerely affects our ag and how we eat and how our lives sustained and I have a lot of respect for it. I think my least favorite thing about water laws is the fight that exists mm-hmm. instead of a least favorite water law. Mm-hmm. Um, I really see a need for, again, and I've said this a couple times, for cooperation and pushing that ego out and people really working together. But the problem with the water laws is fear and need. And so I think that's probably my least favorite part is trying to find ways to make it equitable because we all have the right to live. And how do we make that more equitable? What can we do differently? So it's not a law per se, but it's a 
approach. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Very well said. Thank in you. my um, natural resource history and policy class, mm-hmm. it's what well, you probably know, but it's mm-hmm. in the human dimensions program. Mm-hmm. And I took that my sophomore year. And a big unit of that was about just the East versus the West water oh. complications. And it, it is definitely one of those things where, you know, people butt heads, but it's like, you need it. But how do you do it the best quote away? I just heard yesterday when I was with the Colorado Cooperation for the State Legislature that um, there was actually a case of a a water contention uh, between Georgia, Florida on that Georgia, Florida line. So that was the first one. And they brought in all their water experts from the state of Colorado because really it's the West that's arid. And just so you know, the the water laws and the first water rights were claimed right here in Larimer County Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. Right over there by Ted's place. Huh. I did not know that. Well, now you do. That's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) You learn something new. (laughs) Perfect. So taking a different approach, what is your philosophy about getting people in the wilderness? I love this. Honestly, I think as a guide, you have to be mindful. I was a backpacking guide, sea kayaking guide in Grand Canyon in Alaska. And I really believe in getting people out into the wilderness. It's usually tough. People usually go through every emotion known to man. If you can imagine backpacking rim to rim on the Grand Canyon, you really do go through every emotion known to man. And it's tough. And as a guide, if you can get people through in a safe way, they may not always feel good the whole time, but (laughs) in a safe way where they come out good on the other side. Going through that experience as a human being and going through that gauntlet is so critical because then you learn how to deal with yourself. And as you learn how to deal with yourself, you learn how to be kinder to yourself because you understand how to deal with yourself. And the kinder you can be to yourself, then the kinder you're going to come out here in society and be to us, to one another. Because personally, I do not love society. I don't think it's doing what I think it should be, you know, but at the same time. So then what can I do to give it back? you know, Mm -hmm. give back to it. And one of the things I can do to give back to it is by getting people to fall so in love with our nature and with our place by way of their own experience and going through their own gauntlet that they love themselves and that they want to love this home, this planet and want to take care of it. But see, it's like the love yourself principle first. Like you got to love yourself in order to love something else outside of you. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want you to go out there and Go through the gauntlet and go through the hard things and see that you can come through without being ugly to everything and everyone around you and destructive and come through and be stronger for it so that you can then pass that on to others and help make our society better and help make our planet more cared for by us instead of ruined for by us. Yeah, I really like the, you know, love yourself and then love others because I think that's a great philosophy just in general. All right. Well, to close out, we do have one more question, and that is. What advice do you have for someone thinking about applying to CSU and to Warner and maybe specifically that tourism HDNR focus? You know, tourism and the life of a guide is not for the weak and faint of heart. It's harder than you think. It's cool. I get it. It's fun. But you really need to have some thick skin and you really need to be willing to learn and grow and be told what to do differently and how to get better. And take constructive criticism without taking it personally. It's a special craft. That's the first thing. If you really, really love the outdoors and you really, really love our planet, come be a Warnerite. I don't care what program you go to. <laughs> I, I think the world of our college and I think 
a lot of our university. And so it's a beautiful place. It's a great town. Um, there's amazing people and a strong culture here that's entrenched in some great tradition. And so as far as the people that want to head the tourism realm, you need to be service oriented. You need to want to give to others instead of just raking the dough. But I will say, being a sea kayaking guide in Alaska, I made more money than I've ever made in my life. So there is lucrativeness there as well. And please get your wilderness first responder if you're going to be a guide. <laughs> <laughs> Any Perfect. final words, Anna? No, I think everything is great. Sunshine, thank you so much for being on this podcast. We're so grateful that you would join us on this time. Well, thank you for having me. I echo that. And that's all we have for this episode of Tune Into Nature. Be sure to tune in next semester to hear us continue season five and talk to even more amazing individuals in Warner College. We'll see you next time on Tune Into Nature. <laughs>